Dr. Zachary Moore, thank you very much indeed for coming back on to Talk Beliefs. You are a medical writer and have a PhD in molecular biology. And of course, we know you from the popular Evolution 101 and Apologia podcast. Did I pronounce that correct? Apologia or po- Apologia? No, actually, you you pronounce it correctly. I pronounce it incorrectly. I, I pronounce it <laughs> Apologia, which I know is incorrect, but I, I like it better. So. Yeah, and they are still out there for anyone to download. I recommend them to to anyone. Last time we talked about the fact and fiction surrounding the topic of evolution, and we're going to dive into those turbulent waters again now with this interview. But first of all, let's catch up with what you've been doing since our interview in 2017. Any new projects you can reveal? Yeah, actually, um, so it's just been announced that I will be a speaker at the American Atheist Conference this year. Uh, it's being held in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, so I am very much looking forward to that. I'm I'm planning on giving a, a kind of a retrospective talk on my um, uh, more or less the past decade or so that I've spent uh, engaging with Christians, especially evangelical Christians, and and kind of taking stock with um, all the things I've learned along the way, um, what I think are the uh, sort of the best lessons we can apply to to being an atheist in America in mm. 2019 and beyond from that experience, and uh, and just sort of reconnecting with uh, with the atheist community that's out there. And I, I think it's fantastic. I'm originally from Cincinnati, so I thought it was uh, really cool that I got that opportunity to 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 join that group and and be a part of that event in my hometown. Okay. So on to evolution. Evolution. Yes. <laughs> the evolution as sometimes they they tell me it's should be pronounced. Um, well it's been around for a long time, 150 years. It's yep. used in the science and medical world every day. There are many institutions that are grounded in evolutionary science. And yet there is this huge pushback from some people, usually but not always religious creationists who insist that the science is wrong. Uh, and that can be easily disproven. So what I've done, Zach, is to compile a list of what I call creationist gotchas, mm-hmm. <laughs> criticisms of evolution, how it works, the methods used, et cetera, that come up over and over again that I see a lot. So I thought we could go through these one by one, and then maybe we could clear up any misunderstandings surrounding the subject. What do you think? Sure, no, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so I have to get this one out of the way first. Evolution is just a theory. Just a theory, yeah, uh, yeah. So everything in in science is just a theory, right? So what what is that, that's sort of the goal in science is to develop a workable theory, right? So what this really comes down to is, uh, is a bit of semantic confusion, right? So there's the theory, the, there's the word theory as it's used in the kind of a technical way within the sciences, where it's mm-hmm. a very very strong um, sort of uh, a framework, an intellectual framework, understanding how uh, to explain a, a certain set of phenomenon or some aspect of the natural world that is uh, very well attested, very well evidenced, um, has passed through peer review uh, many, many times, has it sort of reflects, usually reflects the consensus within the field. Sometimes there are some competing theories um, that have uh, are also very, very well evidenced and attested and, and have good reasons for them. Uh, and usually what happens in science is when you have one theory that's very well evidenced and another one that's very well evidenced, usually the, what ends up being the case is there's some 
synthesis of them that is is figured mm-hmm. out that that makes sense. Sometimes you just you can't quite do it. Like with uh, in in quantum theory, there's the idea that um, uh, that um, photons, for example, are behave as waves. You know, propagate through space as waves, but they also mm-hmm. could be measured like particles, like you know, shooting across. Yeah. And there's, uh, you know, there's there's good evidence for them acting as waves. There's good evidence for them acting as particles. We don't exactly know yet how to explain that. There's um, there's sort of a quantum field theory that that I don't fully understand. But if you're, if you're curious about that, look up Sean Carroll uh, on YouTube um, and and other high-level physicists that they're are trying to explain how the, these things can be true at the same time. Um, and quantum field theory very well may be, you know, the, I think it is according to Sean Carroll, the, the best explanation that we have now, which is a much better theory. We're um, talking about like a capital T theory here, aren't we? In a yeah. In, 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 yeah. Ca- uh, capital T or a theory. I don't want to say in quotation marks, cause that makes it seem, um, like not really a theory, but but what I'm trying to say is there's a difference in the way that theory is used by scientists and the way most people use it. Most people, when they say theory, they're like, well, I have a guess about something or I have a theory about where the cookies went Um, or, you know, an an educated guess, a hypothesis, you might say um, where you could, you know, anybody could come up with a theory. You know, without any training, without any uh, evidence, it's just, you know, sort of a gut instinct sort of a thing. That's typically how we use the word theory in in common parlance, you might say. Um, But in science, it's very different. So to say that it's just a theory, you're completely, you're conflating two different senses of the word theory. And if you were to say that to someone who's any bit of scientific training, you, you sound a bit ignorant. Yeah, so literally, if you look it up, there's two definitions. There's the theory mm-hmm. that which you first described, or the capital T theory, and then you have the hunch or guess, which is the everyday use. Yeah, yeah so you're, you're totally confusing the two conf- uh, the two concepts. Okay, if you do that, right? We're going to move on to the next one. Uh, show me the ex- show me an example of a kind turning into another kind. Uh, I think when critics say this, they are thinking of some weird, I don't know, half cow, half alligator creature but what they're referring to are transitional forms correct they yes i think that's what they're saying uh, but 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 maybe not <laughs> so first of all first of all uh what they're talking about uh this this concept of kind so we we just talked about uh the, this word theory having a particular scientific connotation the word kind has no scientific connotation the word kind, um, it's used in the in the Bible in the Old Testament to refer to different sort of categories of animals, uh, but it's not entirely clear. Like there's there's absolutely no uh, mapping of the yeah. concept of kind onto what our current uh, taxonomy, our current biological taxonomy. Yeah, is it phylum uh, is. or order or what? You know. So nobody knows, and I've asked that question to to creationists who sort of push that. And they don't really know, and and it seems like it. It sort of depends on whatever the situation is. So if it works to their advantage for it to be phylum or order, um, or even family or genus, you know, um, like uh, one one example is they talk about uh, wolves and dogs being of the same kind. Well, but wolves and dogs are different species, 
right? They they can't interbreed, but they are different species. We recognize them as different species, and they've spent at least uh, twelve millennia speciating from each other, right? And you cannot tell me that a, a you take a wolf and you take a little chihuahua, right? <laughs> and you look at the difference there, right? Yeah. And so they're saying, well, they're of the same kind. Well, look at the amount of change that you've that we've been able to produce between a wolf and and a chihuahua over you know it's probably you know many millennia but let's say it's it's only six um according to the young earth creationists that's still a tremendously fast evolution of form i mean whether you believe that they're different species or the same they're the same kind um you know of you cannot artificial selection aren't they that right they but, bred but, by man Right, but but that's the point. Like, uh, and that, that's the very same point that Darwin made. So Darwin, when he started his book on the origin of species, um, he started on, uh, or he he used, he described the process of artificial selection as a way of sort of familiarizing the reader with, oh yes, of course I know that animals can change their form over multiple generations according to certain pressures, right? Of course, everybody knows that because we've done that with all the animals that are in our lives. So um, the the inference that Darwin was making was, well, what if nature can, you know, provide the same selective pressure? Like, wouldn't it, like, we already know that forms can change over time uh, along generations. What if nature had, was was putting pressure down? And so what creationists do who want to talk about these kinds is say, for you know completely artificially of their own that there is some sort of a dividing line beyond which you cannot change something any further well if you can change something from a wolf to a chihuahua you know imagine changing a chihuahua into something just as further from a chihuahua as a chihuahua is from a wolf right now imagine that thing is that thing going to be mating with wolves at all you know yeah it <laughs> might be a case of they can but they won't <laughs> it's well, uh, chihuahuas probably can, but they won't either, right? So we're already <laughs> yeah. to that. Point. I mean, can you imagine a wolf and a chihuahua? It's ridiculous. How would that even know. work? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just clear that out of your head. But uh, but but the point being, and 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 the other side of this is is also that we don't really have a a consistent, um, maybe philosophically. Uh, tight definition for even what a species is in part because the the boundaries between uh groups of of organisms populations are so fluid and so gray there's they're constantly bleeding over from one into the other that it's very difficult for us to draw a bright line between two different uh species now we we do <laughs> because as human beings we have a desperate need to categorize everything. Uh, and so we, we look at different groups of animals and we say, okay, well, this is a type of this, this is a type of that, this is a type of this. Uh, but there's loads and loads of examples within the natural world of what is very obviously one species blending into another species. Um, and you know, so what, what, do you, what do you say to that, right? So there's the example of the ring species where you're either progressing across uh, a, a linear distance or you're sort of going around some An sort of big object yeah. yeah, or a mountain range. And all you would have to do is eliminate one of the subspecies that's in the middle of that progression. And now you've immediately got two species. Well, what is that, right? It, are, is that 
speciation in process, or is it just still one species? When that mm. subspecies dies, do the categories completely change? We don't like thinking about that because our brains like these categories to be static. We don't like we don't like the idea of them changing. But the natural world doesn't give a shit about our psychological um, comfortability, let's say, and uh, and very often challenges us. And so you know you look at uh, species, and and species do not fit into tight little um, you know categories. Certainly not in the way that kinds do, which are even more, um, it, it's, it's a more clumsy and crude, which of course it, why wouldn't it be, right? So the, this concept yeah. of kind goes back to the Bronze Age. Why wouldn't it be clumsy and crude? Why would we expect it to be anything else? Well, because it's the word of God, right? And so God knows everything. God is perfect. God can make, right? So this, this is, the, the creationists find themselves in this deductive trap where right. they have to believe that God is is perfect and they have to believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. And therefore they have to figure out how whatever they read in there makes sense with the natural world. And that is, it's a very hard thing to do. And, and they do intellectual somersaults about it all the time. It's not just the, the Christian creationists, the Muslim creationists are just as bad. Uh, yes. I've I, spoken to them in the street about the same thing. Yes. yes. It's very similar. They, yes. Same. Yes, it it it. I I encountered Muslim creationists uh, very very early on when I first started engaging with Christian creationists, and I was floored by how the way that they argue is exactly the same, but they're using completely different scriptural proof texts. And they would, if you put two of them together, they would completely argue with each other about what the theological implications are, but they know that they have to make it so that. Uh, evolution cannot be true. It's it's again. It's one of those things where you go from one bubble to the other, and you see, yeah. oh, okay, it's a similar process. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Okay, uh, along similar lines, there should be millions of transitional fossils. I hear that a lot. Well, of course there are, right? Because... In one sense, every fossil, every species that exists is a transitional species, right? So um, if, if, if the evolutionary process is one that is, it's, it's constantly working, right? So it's constantly evolving. That does not mean, however, that everything is always changing. Like every species changes a certain amount, you know, 0.1 evolution units per generation. That is not the case. There are some species that move into an evolutionary niche or an ecological niche, and they do very well there. And they don't really need to change. And there's no pressure for them to change at all. So you get species like uh, crocodilians. Um, sharks. Sharks. Uh, turtles yeah. haven't changed much. Um, I think the the Tua Tuatara. Uh, lizard. There's some sort of a marine iguana-ish lizard. I think in is it Australia or New Zealand? 
um, that hasn't it changed. Have to evolve, right? So, so just yeah. So the the process is constantly active, uh, and there is constant um, uh, refinement. Let's say of of the species, right? So, whatever the uh, ecological pressures and natural pressures are on the the species on the the population will continue to be the case. And if those change, then we see um, you know radical changes in in uh, the, the groups of species as well. Either they go extinct, right, or they there's yeah. some sub subgroup, some population that adapts uh, within that, or there's some other species that that moves into that niche, right. So you might have species A go extinct, and species B, which has been nothing up to that point, moves into the niche now because of some other change that may, gives some advantage to them. Like the rodents who took over from the dinosaurs, basically yeah. became us. <laughs> yes, and the, and the rats that will probably take over after us. And cockroaches, um, and cockroaches <laughs> yes, exactly. So th that being the case, though, uh, again, the, uh, the the idea of transitional fossils is is one that we are forcing on the fossil record because of our incessant need to categorize things. So we look at certain types of fossils and we say, okay, well, this is a uh, a swimming you know, population. And then we look at this other one. We say, well, now this population is walking around on dry land. Uh, so this is the dry land group. This is the ocean group. There's got to be some transitional form between what well, we've just created those two groups just by thinking about it. Right. So we were, we're categorizing constantly. Um, that being said, you can find those intermediate forms. Right. So one really great example of a fantastic transitional form uh, is Tiktaalik rosei, which yes. was found by Neil Shubin. Neil Shubin, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's a transitional form between uh, exactly what I was just saying, between uh, swimming organisms like fish, kind of, they, were, they existed mm. in a kind of shallow seas. Uh, he found it on Nunavut Island in, in northern Canada, in the Arctic Circle. So that area used to be tropical and was a, was a, a shallow tropical sea of sorts. And uh, based on the geological evidence that, they had, that had already been characterized for that area, he predicted, well, he and his colleagues, uh, predicted that there should be some fossils there, some species that were preserved there that probably lived in both water and land. And then, and he went there for many, many years and he finally found exactly what he was looking for. And it was a prediction yeah. that he made based on the geology of the area the and Devonian deposits. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And uh, and it's a and it's a fantastic uh, uh, specimen that he found, and it just it fit perfectly right into exactly what he was looking for. It's a really it's a fantastic success story in science, uh, in, in, in science in general, and in evolutionary biology uh, specifically. Uh, so uh, anybody who's interested in that, I recommend you read Neil's book, Your Inner Fish, yes. uh, which is all about that, and it's it's really fascinating. And there is a um, a TV series, isn't there? A mini series that he did for PBS. Yeah, I, I think, think it was. So. Yes. Yeah, there was yes. an adaptation of the book. Yeah. Okay. Next one. Radiocarbon dating is inaccurate. Now, critics will say that paleontologists will date fossils by using a kind of circular method that they use the fossil to date the rock and vice versa. So, how can we clear up the confusion here? So, so with radiocarbon dating, uh, that has limited uses. Um, so, 
carbon uh, being an element that you really only find in living or recently living things, right? So, but there's a whole range of other radioisotopes that you can use uh, to date all sorts of things, polonium for one. Um, but but the the confusion here is 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 really, I think, um, it, it it goes back to like just being ignorant of history, I, I suppose. So yes, it is the case that you can look at the the different layers of of rock and you can find the different fossils in there and you can you can date the fossils by what layers the rocks in. You can also help date the layers of rock by what fossils are in there. But that's not how it happened originally, right? So no. <laughs> uh, originally uh, the the characterization of the different rock layers uh, as modern geology, right? It actually preceded evolution, right? So the 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 the, the main person who uh, was responsible for our modern understanding of geology was Charles Lyell, mm -hmm. who wrote, um, I believe it was called Principles of Geology. Now he was friends with Darwin. He knew Darwin, um, but he did this before Darwin, uh, before Darwin came up with his theory, right? And in fact. Uh, when Darwin went on his trip, uh, his voyage on the Beagle, uh, he had uh, he had a few possessions of his own with him. One of them being Lyell's book, right? So he was—I don't know if you would say that he was a student necessarily of Lyell, certainly not formally—but um, he knew of uh, the the different geological layers, and there was already before evolution, before you started looking seriously at these these fossils as evolutionary traits or evolutionary forms um there was already an understanding that the the world was very very old right so so lyell uh, he he believed in sort of uniformitarianism um he believed in a, in a very ancient earth uh, and this was already opposed to uh creationist ideas about the world being uh formed in 6,000 years ago. Um, and that has nothing to do with evolution, right? So that is purely based on his study of the rock. Lyell was from Scotland. He would, you know, go up and down the mountains and he would see the different layers of rock there. Um, I'm from uh, Southern Ohio and Kentucky where a lot of Scottish immigrants immigrated to. And um, it was always fascinating to me because they, they have sort of these rolling hills through Kentucky that's kind of similar to Scotland in a lot of ways. And they would cut these highways through. So in, in Scotland, they don't really cut through the, the mountains so much. They sort of go over them. In America, you just cut right through. And so when they, they built the highway system here, they cut through all these hills. And you can drive through the hills. You can see layer, 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 layer. And it's right mm. outside your door. It's right in front of you. You don't really have to go looking for it like Lyell did. Um, but Lyell was very familiar with, with uh, his countryside and, and the, uh, the geography or geology of, of, of Scotland, ge geology of England. And um, just by making those observations, you could see that the same layers were in the same pattern. And um, assuming that, and of course, you know, the, the, that uh, the certain layers of rock are laid down over time. Right, yep. so you have sedimentary rock that has to be laid down and then pushed up again, and and you and that's that's kind of how you get to see the layers for the first time is when the layers are buried and then you know they sort of erupt up uh, from from seismic forces or um, tectonic forces pushing things up, and uh, and so all of that discernment and, and discovery about the geology preceded Darwin, preceded all of this uh, the the. The paleo now the paleontology kind of came about at the same time, um, 
because you did have with all these people studying rocks <laughs> you mm -hmm. you had lots of people finding fossils and what they found was as they were studying the rocks that oh we've just noticed that you never find this type of fossil in this layer right it's you know and as they're going through and they're studying the layers and they're characterizing them they're saying yeah this fossil is only ever found in this layer isn't that interesting well and so that's how they can actually use the fossils because now they've already known that they've already characterized that they've already figured out there are certain fossils that only exist in certain layers so they can go to another site and if they if they can't get a good read on the layer itself for whatever reason but they're finding certain fossils that they know only exist in that layer then that is an indication that okay this is the layer that we're dealing with here right um, so that's the it's not a circular thing it actually comes from the uh, characterization of the geological layers that that were in, in existence before Darwin even sailed on the Beagle right so it's not a circular thing at all okay how about this one most scientists have already dismissed evolution well, that's just or, completely or, or all scientists all I science. heard as well <laughs> some of my comment section yeah that is completely false right so um just as a, a way of example here uh, or counterpoint the um i can't remember which organization it was that did this if it was the um the discovery institute or the um the creation institute uh, well one of them attempted this project where they would find as many scientists as they could and get them to like basically sign a statement saying you know we are skeptical of evolution and uh they got a pretty good number of names i want to say um let's say a thousand names it may not have been a thousand but let's say a thousand names and so the um there's an, another organization a, a science organization that said okay well we'll we'll do you one better we'll have a different statement and we'll uh, offer it in support of evolutionary theory, and we'll get scientists to sign that. Uh, with the one caveat is we will only accept signatures from scientists named Steve. Oh. So they, so the the creationists got, let's say they got a thousand names. Uh, the the science group got five thousand names of just scientists named Steve. They called it Project Steve. <laughs> wow. This was a, this was a while ago, uh, but it was just a way of, of sort of illustrating the incredible, incredible imbalance in the scientific community that it is overwhelmingly accepted. It is it is not even controversial scientifically, right? And that's not to say that there aren't controversies within evolution, right? So there are um, there are still questions, right? So if you are a scientist, the, the one thing that you learn as you, as you study, as you explore, as you answer questions is that every question that you answer with a research project creates two, three, four, or more questions that you need to figure out. Right. So that's why scientists keep on doing science. Right. So, um, science, scientists typically have very, very, very long careers. Um, they, almost never retire <laughs> they just keep going because every time that they come up with uh you know some answer to something they come up with more even more questions i know like in paleoanthropology at the moment they're talking about uh homo habilis and these various uh, uh hominids that perhaps they were homo erectus after all i mean mm -hmm. that's the current thing isn't it yeah well human evolution is still i mean and we're finding more and more uh all the time right so um 
it used to, I think when I first learned it, it was, yeah, it was homo habilis, homo erectus, homo uh, melanogaster. Um, yeah. Heidelbergensis and uh, maybe a couple more. And now it seems like there's three times as many, including Homo florensiensis, the hobbit, yeah. right? Which everyone in England should love. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we, of course, Lee Berger found like a new species of Australopithecus and then Homo in almost a, a handful of right, years. Right, right. And, it, and it's, a, it's an open question as to how, to, to what extent were all these species related to each other? Um, you know, was, was the Hobbit actually, I, th I think, um, some people think that the Hobbit was actually an, a descendant from Erectus at this point, yes. um, or they're not I sure. So. Uh, some people may have thought it was uh, another sapiens. I don't know, but, but the, the point is that there's still loads of questions just about human evolution and every, every, you know, and of course humans being humans, that's the thing that we all care about most. You know, nobody really cares about all these other species. Everybody wants to know, what about me? Are you telling me that a monkey was my uncle? Really? That's that's really what it all comes down to. Is, is our take own... it personally, in other words. Yeah, it, it, it all comes down to our own anxiety, uh, our, our sense of value. If you're telling me that I'm just an animal, that I'm just an ape, that I'm not valuable, I don't mean anything, and that's horrible, and I can't handle that, and so I'm just not going to listen to you anymore. Um. But at any rate, so there's there are loads and loads of of, of questions, and uh, and we're we're still exploring these things, and uh, you know it, it's not really a um, it's it's not a problem really for science. It's 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 what makes science so interesting and so um, so challenging and so rewarding. All the things mm. that we're discovering. Well, another one I hear a lot, Zach, is uh, we don't have the common ancestor between apes and humans. And well, it is true we don't, but that doesn't mean we won't. Yes. Uh, so we that would be the most recent common ancestors. Like we do have a lot of common ancestors. So um, you know you can go back, um, you know through the uh, through the evolutionary history of, of primates in general, you can find, right. So all those species are ancestral to us. Um, and in fact, there's a really fantastic book. Uh, what I think is probably the best book by Richard Dawkins is called the ancestors tale. And he, uh, he goes through our evolutionary history and he identifies, um, it's quite a, a large number something like two dozen, let's say, uh, common ancestors between humans and, and other clades of organisms, um, and now sort a of clade is the branch the branch on the the tree. The yeah, yeah, it's tree. a categorical concept. Again, this is this is us. We humans are our incessant need to categorize things. It's just a, a a better way of thinking about how different species are related to each other. Um, but so he goes back through the tree through the the, the cladistic diagram. And he identifies all the common ancestors that we've had and tells their stories. And each one of them <clears throat> are very interesting stories. So uh, I would recommend, uh, I think he says like maybe one or two insulting things about creationists the whole time. So it's really, he's on his best behavior through this book. So if, <laughs> if you are a creationist and you, and, 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 you, and you find Richard Dawkins irritating, um, read this book because it's it's fascinating and, and it, Dawkins is, if nothing else, a a master of finding really really good 
uh, metaphors to explore that that help illustrate scientific points. And I think the answer to is really one of his best. Now you are you are correct that the the most recent common ancestor. So this would be whatever species existed that gave rise to both uh, the chimpanzee clay, the pan uh, family, as well as the um, the homo family, um, us, uh, humans and other, other hominids, um, other human-like species. Uh, whatever that species was, we don't know. We don't, we don't have direct fossil evidence of whatever that species was. However, um, we, we know that there was one, right? So you, we, can, we can infer very confidently based on uh, not just comparison of, of human beings and, and our physiology, as well as uh, chimpanzees, uh, both uh, pan paniscus and pan troglodytes, uh, to our uh, physiology, we can compare our uh, genes. And out of all the organisms that exist now, they are our closest relatives genetically. Um, and so what that means is just, just like you and I, right? So, you know, people might say, well, you know, Mark and Zach don't look very much alike, but if we go further back in time, right? So if we keep on going, if I find my father, you find your father, my grandfather, your grandfather, and we keep on going, it's not a controversial thing. And, and everyone would probably expect that if we go far enough back in time, we're going to find somebody that you're related to and that I'm related to, yeah. right? That's, it's not controversial at all, right? And you can, you can you know, look at our features and say, well, you know, maybe we, we look somewhat similar. Maybe we have, uh, they will predict based on the way that we look that, you know, you and I are probably uh, more closely related to each other than perhaps to, I don't know, um, Denzel Washington, let's say, or um, Kim Jong-un. Uh, and okay. So, and then we could take our DNA and, and do the same comparison and, you know, and people would say, do you think you're going to find, uh, how many generations do you think it's going to find, it's going to take to find a common ancestor between Mark and Zach versus Mark and Zach and Kim Jong-un? And people say, well, it'd probably be a lot sooner. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's exactly the same sort of process that we go through. Uh, when we look at different species, we're doing the exact same thing. The only thing that we're not doing is getting all weird about our anxiety about being human and not wanting to think of ourselves being one of the other animals. Exactly. Well, um, I'm afraid I saved the best one for last. So. Okay. <laughs> what about the soft tissue recently found in a T-Rex bone that proves that dinosaurs only lived a short time ago? Now, this seems to comport with the biblical creation happening only around 4,000 years BCE. So... Uh, what do we have to say about that? Well, first of all, um, soft tissue doesn't isn't typically preserved over four thousand years either, right? So if well, yeah, exactly if, if 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 that's our if that's what we're crying in triumph about uh, that soft tissue, well, you know, soft tissue that's four thousand years old, that's easy to believe, uh, but sixty million years. Uh, so actually, it, it was when they first discovered that it, it was a big uh, question, like how in the world because it clearly was preserved. Now, preserved with quotation marks. So it wasn't like you cut up in this bone and, you know, you smelled fried chicken. Big right? chunk of meat, yeah. Right. Uh, now, that being said, so they were able to, uh, there, there were some proteins that were preserved, which is remarkable. And uh, it was collagen, 
which is very cool. And they were able to compare the collagen, uh, the sort of the, the structure of the collagen, the proteins that were there uh, in order. Um, they were able to compare that with other samples of collagen that they found. And in fact, the closest match was chicken. So it I've seems, heard, to, yes. yeah, it <laughs> seemed to confirm Gallus Gallus the chicken. It's it's a it's a common uh, genome that you use to test against. Anybody can test uh, anything they want against the chicken genome if they want. You go to the National Center for Biotechnology Information, uh, their website. Um, but yeah, so it, in one sense, it confirmed what uh, a lot of people had thought about uh, dinosaurs that their closest relatives still living, still extant mm. relatives, not descendants exactly. Not necessarily, but relatives uh, were birds. Um, so, you know, cousins at least, let's say. And uh, so that does confirm that. Now, as to the soft tissue being preserved, so it wasn't fossilized, it was preserved. That being said, um, they, I, from what I've read, they have a bit of a, or they have a pretty good hypothesis as to how this would have happened. So the fact that it was bone marrow uh, was significant um, because the, um, so what happens and they've done some experiments with like ostrich bones to, to sort of try to do the same thing uh, is that when the animal dies, the, uh, the blood cells uh, kind of burst and all the, the hemoglobin that's in there. Of course, hemoglobin is a protein that carries iron. So uh, the iron goes free and the iron apparently in when it's um, when, when soft tissue is bathed in a bath of iron or a very iron rich material, the iron intercalates into the, the soft tissue and preserves it basically keeps it from being uh, decayed and, and degraded. Yes. They've done these experiments with um, ostriches, I believe. And they've seen you can you can take an ostrich bone and sit it in like a kind of like a blood bath. <laughs> Sounds kind of gross, but you could sit in a blood bath for uh, like something like two or three years at room temperature, and all the blood vessels on the inside stay uh, preserved. Mm-hmm. It's weird. No, nobody would have ever thought to test this. Like you know, this is not one of those things that someone wakes up in the morning and says, "Hmm, I wonder what you would do." Or what would happen if you started bathing organs in blood and just let them sit in my laboratory for two years? <laughs> you think you think that would get past the, uh, the the research committee, you know, the grant committee? No, not a chance. But because they've had this discovery, they thought, hmm, you know, how do we explain this, right? So again, in science, this is not a problem necessarily. This is a this is a question, and we have to answer the question, right? And so the the seems like a pretty good answer that we've that has been come up with. Um, you know, there might be more to it than that. There may have been, you know, maybe other conditions, but we do know that most bones are not found with soft tissue. Uh, so whatever the case is, uh, this is not something that is, uh, typical. Uh, so there, there probably were, a, a, you know, a series of special conditions that were necessary. That being said as well, um, I mean, perhaps the fact it was a large animal had something to do with it. Yeah, yeah, that that yeah, that could be it. Um, that being said, as well, uh, you know, these days we're finding a lot of uh, paleontology being done in China, uh, which is a country yes. that typically has not had a very active uh, paleontology community, um, but it's huge and it's very ge- geologically diverse country, and there's um, there's a lot Other of really, places, isn't it? Yes, there's a lot of really interesting, really cool uh, dinosaurs with feathers preserved um, being discovered there. So who knows what else we might find 
um, exactly. you know, in terms of fossils in the next few years. It'd be interesting, right? So, I mean, the larger point is whatever we find, it's not like scary, right? So, it, you know, whatever we find is what we find, right? So if it's, if it's, if it's out there in the natural world waiting to be discovered, we're going to discover it. We're going to characterize it. We're going to incorporate that information with whatever we already have. So it's not like there, there's not some big concern about, well, we're going to find some fossil out there that's going to completely um, turn evolution on its head, right? So, and, and as if there could be a fossil like that, right? So the only thing that you could possibly do in terms of finding fossils, like if you found a human, a fossilized human skeleton in a Precambrian layer, okay, mm. that would really screw things up. <laughs> that would, yeah. but it would still be interesting, right? We'd, you'd still want to know, okay, so how did this happen? Why, what is, you know, whatever the case is, we would want to, uh, if there is something that is discovered that does kind of screw with the, the theory that we currently have, that's great. So we change the theory. You modify the theory, right? So, uh, whatever information comes in, you modify your theory to fit it, right? It, with creationism, it's the opposite. You start with this predetermined, vacuum-sealed idea of how the world works, and you only you accept only those things that fit into it, and you reject everything that comes out of it. So, um, anything that that contradicts your 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 view, your creationism, that gets thrown right out. You 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 dismiss it or you say, well, that was contaminated by this out of the other. And it's, it's a constant um, sort of, it's, it's a, it's a constant um, just exercise in re reinforcing this bubble of anxiety that exists because you're afraid that humans aren't special enough and that if humans aren't special enough, you're not special enough. Mm. And, and, you know, and it's, it's, it's tends to be the people that just can't handle that. I think not to, not to read too much into people's psychology, but this is, this is kind of what I've seen. Like the, the type of people that really advance this are the type, type of people that I've seen, you know, acting in such a way that is consistent with, you know, just being very anxious, worried people about their own place in the world. And, you know, I, I, I understand that, but it doesn't make them right. I think that's excellent, Zach. Thank you so much for that. And I'm sure I am going to compile some more of these these gotchas, as I call them, uh, <laughs> perhaps over the next year or so. Sure. And uh, maybe we can do this again, and uh, I'll throw some more at you. How would you, what do you right. say about that? Sounds great. <laughs> Looking forward to it. And great. And I, as before, I'll leave uh, links to your website, the Twitter, the podcasts in the description below. And sure. uh, all I have left to say is, uh, Dr. Zachary Moore, thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Pleasure, Mark.